0: The theme that I was given for this morning was the theme of a close encounter with Pilot. I believe you were all built up last week to believe it was going to be a close encounter with David McMillan. That was another Timothy Work misleading statement. Um, the close encounter this morning is with Pilot. It's the part of a series over the summer that will be going on. And uh, what I wanted to do this morning was to Um, Think a little bit about Pilate as a person, but also a few things that we can learn from uh, the encounter with Pilate that we have on the pages of Scripture. Um, The the difficulty it poses immediately is that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have material to do with Pilate, um, but they're all slightly different, or they contain a slightly different emphasis uh, within that material, and even the chronology sounds slightly different within them. Um, For example, John's record of the discussion with Pilate is much more extensive than the others. And John's account of the flogging and humiliation of Jesus is placed in a different part of the narrative. It's placed in the middle of the whole trial scene and not simply at the end of it before he's taken out to be crucified. And there are various ways in which people think about these things. But it's just interesting when you try to read a passage and it's the subject is the person, which passage do you go with? Well, the answer is you don't go with any of them. You go with all of them. So what I've tried to do for you um, this morning is to put a compilation together of the material that you find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the whole encounter that Jesus has with Pilate, or what the New Testament really has to say about Pilate. Um, I've left the verse numbers in. I haven't tried to put in the biblical text references, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John at any point, because that would make it very difficult to read. But I know that all of you will want to go home and after lunch this afternoon, sit down and work out which passage is which as you work your way through the four Gospels. Um, It'll be a little jumpy as we read it because I haven't put any words in. I have clearly left some bits out, but again, you can go and find out which bits I've left out. So let's read about Pilate. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words of Jesus, that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and all the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out to the Jews. Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of the Paso- preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked them. They all answered, crucify him. Why? "'What crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. "'But they shouted all the louder, "'Crucify him!' "'When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, "'but that instead an uproar was starting, "'he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. "'I am innocent of this man's blood,' he said. "'It's your responsibility.' "'All the people answered, "'Let his blood be on us and on our children.' "'So Pilate decided to grant their demand. "'He released the man who had been thrown into prison "'for insurrection and murder,' the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. As evening approached, there came a man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I have to confess that before being asked to speak on this subject of, of Pilate this morning or an encounter with Pilate, I actually hadn't realized just how much Pilate featured in the whole Passion narrative. Uh, and what I want to do is ask a couple of very simple questions. First of all, what do we make of Pilate? Someone weak and fearful? or someone contemptuous and callous. It's Passover time. Pilate has moved in from the coast, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Caesarea is where he had his main headquarters. But he needs to be on the ground. He needs boots on the ground during these massive Jewish festivals because there's always the potential for trouble. And if one of these festivals get out of hand, it could be a disaster for him as governor of Palestine. His job is to govern this outpost of the empire, keep it stable, keep it quiet, and he knows he needs to be on top of these crazy Jewish zealots who get ideas above their station from time to time and like to use these big festival occasions as an an attempt to rouse up the people against the Romans. He's already had more than a few run-ins with the Jewish leaders in the last few years. Indeed, he has so rubbed the backs of the locals up the wrong way that even the Roman emperor has censored him. For some of his behavior. So there's no love lost between the Jews and Pilate, and he's not slow in showing his contempt for this defeated community on many occasions. However, for Pilate, this particular day starts badly. It's hardly even daybreak. He hasn't had time to have his breakfast or a decent shave, and there's an angry crowd of them at the doors of the courtyard. What's more, angry as they are, they won't even come in to talk to him because it's one of their religious ceremonies coming up soon and they don't want to defile themselves by coming into his presence. What's he to do? Humiliate them some more or play ball? Well, on this occasion, the wise course of action is to play ball, so he goes to meet them. Now, we know from John's Gospel that some soldiers, Roman soldiers, were present when Jesus was arrested. So Pilate knew something was up around this time and must have issued the order for some of the soldiers to accompany the temple police to go and arrest Jesus. But he probably assumed it was an internal Jewish matter and his men were there just to make sure that nothing got out of hand. But now it appears that they're dragging him into this whole episode, whatever it is about, which probably explains the very pitchy opening conversation between the religious leaders and Pilate. In Northern Ireland terms, the conversation might have sounded a little like this. What are you charging him with, and why are you bringing him to me at this time of the morning? You know rightly, we wouldn't be bringing him to you if we didn't need to. We're not here because we like you. He's a criminal. Well, he's a Jewish criminal. He's not my problem. Go and give my head peace. Well, that's where you're wrong, big lad, because he's trying to cause insurrection, insurrection. He opposes the pain of taxes to Caesar, which you're responsible to collect, and he claims he's a king. If that doesn't make him your problem, what does? So it's a very grumpy Pilate that asks Jesus what he has to say about these charges, and when Jesus offers no defence to these potentially capital charges, Pilate is amazed, and I suspect, despite the early hour of the day, now fully awake and fully engaged. From this early point in the whole episode, it's clear that Pilate knows that Jesus poses no threat to the Roman Empire, which is his primary concern. There is no way this guy, this Galilean, is a zealot that's able to raise any kind of insurrection in the city or anywhere else. Pilate has executed plenty of those, and he can tell them a mile off. Okay, he's a religious rabbi with some kooky ideas and thinks he's king of a kingdom somewhere. That's hardly my problem, thinks Pilate. This is clearly an internal Jewish matter, but, and it's a big but, those clever so-and-sos outside are playing a smart political game because if they take these accusations to Rome, that will cause trouble for me, for Pilate. And I don't need that, thinks Pilate. It seems to me reading this text, that everything Pilate does and says drips contempt for the Jewish leaders and is geared to avoid having to give in to them. I'm not sure that we should read Pilate as struggling to preserve the principles of justice. This is essentially a cat and mouse game between oppressor and oppressed, and on this occasion, the oppressed are winning. And what's more, Pilate becomes very afraid. Afraid this is going to get out of hand. It's turning into a bad day all round. When Pilate has Jesus flogged, he brings him out looking so completely ridiculous with a purple robe and a crown of thorns and a beaten body, and he mocks them by saying, Here is the man. Here's the revolutionary. Here's the criminal. Here's the threat to the Roman Empire. Here's your king. He's a joke. He's pathetic. You're pathetic. You really want me to crucify him? But as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And ultimately, that's what happens when Pilate washes his hands in front of him. His last defiant act of contempt before sending Jesus off for the terrible flogging and flailing that preceded crucifixion. I don't know how you read Pilate. I don't read him as weak and fearful. I read him as contemptuous of everything that's around him in this city and pretty callous. But he knows he's outflanked. And like every good leader of soldiers, because Pilate is a soldier, not a politician, he knows when it's time to retreat. And it's always better if you can do it in such a way as to look like you're still in control. And I think that's what's happening here. And that's how I see Jesus, standing right in the middle of a power struggle. So what can we take from a close encounter with Pilate? There are just two phrases I'd like us to consider for a few moments that we hear in this account that the gospel writers give to us. The first phrase that really strikes me is the statement that Jesus makes, My kingdom is not of this world. The gospels are not intended as definitive life stories of Jesus they've often been referred to as extended passion narratives. In other words, the whole gospel is an extension of all the events that take place surrounding the trial, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Not everything there is to know about Jesus is recorded in the gospels, but everything we need to know to make sense of his incarnation, death, and resurrection is. And all of these gospels stress... Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. And at Jesus' trial, even in John's account, where John's gospel doesn't make so much about the issue of kingdom, there is a huge play on the concept of king and kingdom, particularly in John's account. The religious leaders translate the Jewish concept of Christ or Messiah into terms that Pilate will understand, be afraid of, and cannot ignore. He claims to be Christ, a king. Now, Pilate knows full well that the Herods, who are the kings in Israel, there are now three of them, sons of Herod the Great. There were four of them, but that's another story. These three are technically kings in Israel. But Pilate also knows that these Herods are sons of Herod the Great, who was an Idumean, not a Jew who was appointed king by the Romans. And if you remember back to the early part of the Gospels, it was this Herod the Great who was so completely spooked by the wise men when they came asking about the one who is born king of the Jews, not made king of the Jews by the Romans like Herod was. So the idea of a proper Jewish king was a very unwelcome idea to Herod the Great 30 years previously, and it's a very unwelcome idea to Pilate now as well. He doesn't need a real Jewish king to suddenly emerge to provide a rallying point for the Jews and a more political and violent upheaval. So Jesus' accusers know that raising the subject of king is a surefire way of getting Pilate interested and worried. And once Pilate realizes that Jesus is no army, poses no threat to the empire, then he uses the idea of Jesus as king of the Jews as a means to taunt the Jewish leadership. Hence his refusal to answer the, alter the sign above the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And in the middle of it all, from John 18 verse 33 following, there is this important snippet of conversation which I'll abbreviate as follows. Are you the king of the Jews? Your own people seem threatened by you and are trying to scare me with the idea, says Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world, says Jesus. My kingdom is of another place. I came into this world to testify to the truth, and if you're on the side of truth, you listen to me. Truth. Truth is a term that's frequently used in John's gospel, which tends to identify what is real as opposed to what has mere appearances of being real. And what John is establishing, though it meant very little to Pilate, what John is establishing in his gospel is that Jesus' kingdom is not about religious structures or institutions. It's not about territory or empire. It's about truth. It's about what is real. Jesus is not saying to Pilate, I am not interested in this world. Jesus is saying he is interested in what's real from God's perspective. And the kingdom he represents deals with realities from God's perspective, not the power and the fear and the threat that marks human concepts of kingdom. When John is writing his gospel many years after these events, and it's important uh, that those whom he writes to get the message he wants to make it clear that they're hearing this so that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. They and we need to understand that as Christians we are not being called to the reestablishment of Jewish religious establishments or a new political empire, but to a way of life, the way of Jesus, to live under the reign of of God openly, transparently, and truthfully in tune with the values demonstrated by Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. One of the great tragedies is that the church throughout its history or elements of the church have all too often succumbed to the idolatry of power from time to time, whether it was in the fourth century with Constantine and the church getting into bed with the empire, Whether it's the global power of today's Roman Catholic Church with its own Vatican State, or the huge Baptist conventions of America and their public political alignments with the rights and looking for political influence, or whether it's concepts of Catholic Ireland or Protestant Ulster, there have always been longings for power amongst the Christian community, for for significance, for control, all of which is idolatry, an idolatry that has plagued the church and compromised our witness. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It stands as a witness in the world against all that is oppressive, manipulative, controlling, selfish, and violent. That's what we hear Jesus say. That's how we hear Jesus respond. When Peter is writing to believers living like aliens in their own societies, ancient Turkey because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, now outcasts in many cases, where does he turn when he's trying to give them guidance as to how to live under the Roman Empire? He turns to the scene before us, Jesus before Pilate, the suffering of Christ. To this you were called, he says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Non-retaliation in the face of injustice is the way of Christ's kingdom not the seeking of power for revenge. That is not the same as silence and saying nothing, because as you heard in the text, Jesus engages Pilate and he challenges Pilate. It's not disregard for what is true or what is right, for Jesus challenges the high priests just before he comes to Pilate. And he tells Pilate that he's not the power in control of these events. And Paul and Silas challenge the authorities over the injustice of their imprisonment but it's certainly not revenge. The rules of Christ's kingdom are not about giving as good as you get. They're not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. They are the demonstration of goodness, of trust in a heavenly Father that denies our oppressor, whoever they may be, any power over us and denies evil, our fear. There is so much irony evident in this engagement with Pilate. Here are religious authorities seeking to preserve their power and influence by getting rid of Jesus. Here's the representative of the greatest power in the world, the Roman Empire, exercising his power of life and death in a political tussle with these religious leaders. And who will they agree to release instead of Jesus? A man called Barabbas, a known insurrectionist, someone trying to reestablish a Jewish state and someone who has no love for either Pilate or the Jewish leadership. And Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who declared and demonstrated the kingdom of God, stands silent in the midst of these human political power struggles. Stands silent and stands tall. Stands silent and stands above. Stands silent, bloodied, and beaten, but stands victorious. My kingdom is not of this world. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. The second phrase that really strikes me out of what we hear here is this simple phrase, Behold the Man, a phrase that has inspired artists ever since it was first recorded, ranging from people like Caravaggio and his incredible ability to play with lights and emotion, and develops this theme of Behold the Man, Eke Homo. To more contemporary renderings like Mark Wallinger's Eke Homo, July 1999, where this statue was placed on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. I wanted to show him as an ordinary human being, a leader of an oppressed people, and I think he has a place here, says Wallinger, in front of all of these oversized imperial symbols. And another one by an artist called Ciceri, in the 19th century, a painting which has become particularly famous. It's a powerful empowerment in the passion of Christ that has been captured here. The battle of wits between Pilate and the authorities is at its height. Pilate's wife is leaving the scene in her distress. Pilate has had Jesus beaten, dressed in regal robes and crowned with thorns, presenting him before the crowd. He cries contemptuously, Behold the man! And how do they respond? Crucify! Crucify. I find no basis for a charge against him. He's done nothing to deserve death, says Pilate. Crucify him. Crucify him. Have nothing to do with this innocent man, says Pilate's wife. But Pilate sends him off to be crucified. Behold the man. But who is he? what is he? What are we here in Windsor to do with him? It's a question that is as real today as it was then. There are more and more books being written on this whole subject of who is this man we behold in this scene. More and more TV documentaries produced to prove that he was or he wasn't real, that he was or wasn't the Son of God, that he was or wasn't raised from the dead, that he was or wasn't intending to establish a church. He just won't go away. And as we think about our encounter with Pilate this morning, it's as if Jesus is presented before us today freshly. Behold the man. What do you make of him? What are you going to make of him? What are you going to do with him? The final book of the French philosopher Nietzsche, who was often referred to as the father of postmodernism, the final book was interestingly entitled Ecce Homo. It was a kind of autobiography, a kind of review of all that he came to stand for. And religion, particularly Christianity, fared very badly in his scheme of things. He was more than contemptuous of Christianity. After coming into contact with a religious man, I always feel I must wash my hands, he says. And he took the view that Christianity was one of the greatest scourges if not the greatest scourge of world history. And Nietzsche despised the idea of living one's life by following the model of someone else, be that Christ or whoever. And so when he titles his book, Eke Homo, Behold the Man, his whole argument is that you, you strive to behold who you are, never indebted or following anyone else. To behold the man is to behold the person you are emboldened and without obligation to others to become. Ironically, Nietzsche says this. Must I add that in the whole New Testament there appears but a solitary figure worthy of honor. Pilate, the Roman viceroy. To regard a Jewish squabble seriously, that was quite beyond him. One Jew more or less. What did it matter? The noble scorn of a Roman, before whom the word truth was shamelessly mishandled, enriched the New Testament with the only saying that has any value, and that is at once its criticism and its destruction. What is truth? As Pilate presents Jesus and cries, Behold, the man. He begs the question: what do you make of him? And what will you do with him? As nature cries, Behold the man, he places self at the center of our worlds. Which is it to be for you? Which is it to be for us here this morning? Christ or self at the center. Behold the man. The man that Isaiah saw in his prophecy, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Peter. As he reflected on all he had ever come to know about Christ. Saw our example. And Paul saw his glory. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Behold the man. We have the privilege this morning of sharing together in some bread and wine that speaks to us of the body and blood of Christ given for us it's something that we an invitation that we extend to anyone who's visiting with us um, who's a Christian who puts Christ at the center however imperfectly we strive to do that but consciously has your faith placed in Christ whether you're from a Baptist church or not you're welcome to join with us since we share the bread and wine and if you'd rather not or you're not sure of what we're doing please feel free to pass it to the person beside you But over the next few minutes, as we work through some songs and some prayers and statements and share this bread and wine, we have an opportunity to behold the man and decide what we do with him. For we were there with the crowd, crying, crucify, crucify. We were standing with that entourage around Pilate, happily taking him by the hand and leading him off to crucifixion. But now we have a fresh opportunity to ask, what will we do? So come and see, come and see the king of love. Let's stand as we sing this together.